welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 69 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. This is Patrick, and this is normally where you hear King Scott say, and King Scott here. But as fates would have it, we recorded this one just a few days before you're hearing it live. We had some issues with the first half of the audio, so I'm actually re-recording, and Scott is now in Philadelphia without a microphone, without recording capabilities, so we had to scrap the whole first half of the episode. It's just going to be me for the first half all the way up until we get to our review today, which is going to be Burn Cycle. We're also going to do our Gen Con recap. Hungry Gamer Will Brown's going to join us for our Polishing the Turd segment. In the meanwhile, i got to come up with some stuff to keep us entertained for the first half. So let me have a sip and we'll get right along to it. Well, normally we like to start our episodes with some banter, some of the things going on in the board gaming world, some newsy items or Kickstarters that are coming out that we're all juiced up for. And today is no different because we've got some cool stuff coming out. First and foremost, Journey into the Beyond. This went live on August 15th. They're well on their way to getting funded. We talked about this one in an adventure on the horizon just a couple of episodes ago. Get on Kickstarter. Give that one a look. I think we're actually quoted on there, which, to be honest, never gets old. That's kind of cool. HeroScape is coming back. Avalon Hill announces plans to relaunch the system. So HeroScape was was a, a, a grandiose game. Now, you could find it in, like, Walmart back in the day. This was in my Magic playing days, so I never actually picked it up or got into HeroScape, but it was very popular. You've got all these different terrain types and then a whole slew of different facts. You can have ninjas versus dragonkin and, and from what I understand, robots, all sorts of different things getting onto your battlefield. Well, they're relaunching the system, and HeroScape, the new version, is going to be backwards compatible. So you'll be able to break out all that old plastic and incorporate it with all your new plastic and play some HeroScape, getting back to the table. Three big items to go over, though. One, Simon has announced Dune War for Arrakis. Now, Dune's more Scott's jam than mine, but I gotta say, I love Dune Imperium. Don't really care about the theme. I still haven't even watched the uh, the new movie. I tried to watch it with my wife and uh, we got about 40 minutes in and we were just like, eh, do you want to you watch something different? It's not that I didn't like it. It just, it was kind of slow moving. It wasn't like a date night movie for us. Maybe at some point I'll get around to it. I understand it's a two-parter and the second part will be coming out at some point in the near future. So maybe I'll wait until then and just binge the whole thing. But Simon has announced Dune War for Arrakis. This is going to be coming to Kickstarter, which means it's going to be the typical Simon trimmings of add-ons and expansions. And you go all in and you end up with uh, having to have three postal trucks showing up at your house to drop off all the boxes of game that you just got. Very interested to see what's going on with this because it's from the designers of War of the Ring, a game that was in the top 10, actually just fell out not too long ago, but War of the Ring's a highly regarded board game. And I think that having those designers focus their attention on Dune War for Arrakis is something to get excited about. Next up, Horizons of Spirit Island. This features the core mechanisms of Spirit Island, but it features a new double-sided game board with a streamlined setup, punch board components. Interestingly enough, you're not going to have the day hunt, like a, a lot of the things that were actual 3D pieces in regular old Spirit Island, there's going to be punch board components. If you look at pictures on BGG, you'll see that like the day hunt are not the little like wooden peg pieces anymore. They're 
just punch board tiles with a, an image of a Dehan token on it. Kind of interesting. That said, you're also going to get five new spirits designed to be ideal for those who are playing for the first time. Now, these new spirits, they're compatible with all the existing Spirit Island components. That is cool. I also understand this is going to be a Target exclusive, which is kind of interesting. That tells me that this is going to be like 50 bucks or less. Those of us that have been keeping our eyes on the Target shelves have noticed that they have had Isle of Cats and Game of Thrones and Wingspan and Red Rising and, and hobby board games. It's kind of cool to see Spirit Island cracking the shelves of, of Target. How about that? Finally, and perhaps the biggest news, biggest board game of last year is getting an expansion. Arc Nova brings the Arc Nova Aquarius expansion due to come out in 2023. An expansion to Arc Nova Aquarius introduces multiple new elements to the game, such as sea animals, that have to be played in new special enclosures that have to be built next to water. Imagine that. Uh, it says here roughly half of the sea animals are going to be reef dwellers. And whenever you add a reef dweller to your zoo, you trigger all of the other ones. Kind of cool. So a little engine building just in working on reef dwellers. So you got to be wondering, you know, in original Arc Nova, if I'm shooting for primate tags, well, say that that made up 5% of the deck. Well, now it's going to be even less because there's more cards. But they came up with a clever way of dealing with that dilution. What's going to happen is if you draw one of these seat creatures and it has a wave icon, whenever it's revealed and put into the display, you actually, you're going to discard the first card in the row and then replenish it. So it's kind of like an automatically shifting card row. So if someone buys a card, uh, there's five remaining in that row and you have to flip a new one and it's got a wave, it's actually going to shift the row. It's going to burn that first card, move it to the discard and you're going to go again, which is interesting because there are probably going to be times where you flip two, maybe even three wave symbol creatures creatures at a time. So you might be eyeing up a card in that row thinking, oh, I've got time. I've got time to buy that. But all it takes is one thing to go and then a wave icon or two. And maybe you don't get that card. So I'm thinking that things that are in the first and second position are not nearly as safe as they might have been if you were eyeing them up before the coffee break. Very neat way of handling that dilution, though. A fourth university, the Breed Registry, is available on the association board. And if you take it, you claim one of six special universities from the reserve that feature a research icon and an animal icon. When you take this registry, you reveal cards from the top of the deck and you keep the first revealed card with an animal icon that matches the university that you took. Okay, so what does that do? That that gives the association action one more thing to shoot for, uh, that being the breed registry. And whenever you take one of these, that's going to give you two prerequisites, the research icon and the animal icon. Furthermore, you're going to get an animal that matches whatever you took. So one of the big gripes of the game is that sometimes your game is going to be dependent on that opening hand of eight. Maybe this is a way to curtail that luck a little bit. You know, you can use that first association action, pick up a breed registry. You can get an icon of whatever animal you want. You get a research icon and you get an animal that matches the icon that you already have. Almost a way to kind of jumpstart what you've got or build on that opening hand that you selected. Here's the coolest part. I'm sorry, this is the coolest addition to this game. Arc Nova's main mechanism is that action card where that river of actions, five action cards that are going to have fluctuating power based on when they're used. For each action card, four alternate versions with a little twist are going to be available. Players draft action cards at the start of play, replacing two 
of their standard action cards with two new ones, which is going to obviously increase the uh, the asymmetry of the game. So the concept here is you've got your what's your build, you've got cards, you've got break animals, etc. At the start of play, you're going to put a bunch of these new cards in the middle of the table with a little wrinkle in them. Go around the table. Everybody's going to get two of them. You're going to be drafting them. I don't know if you put them in the middle and everybody selects or if you're going to like draw a hand of several and, and take one pass to the left. Doesn't make sense since you're only keeping two. Maybe they are just in the middle of the table. I don't know. But it says here the build action, for example, might allow you to spend two money once per action space to build over a water or rock space. And these special cards, the upgraded side follows in with that asymmetry. The upgraded side of this card, for example, would allow you to do this for free instead of two money. So suddenly you have the opportunity to build over rocks and over water. That's just the build. And that's just one of the four different build cards that are different that you can select. Oh, I can't. I'm so excited for this. The animal action card might allow you to ignore one condition on an animal card that you're playing when you have the chance to put two animals into play but you opt to only play one. So, okay, I can make two animals, but since I'm only playing one, I get to ignore one of those symbols. Very cool. And that's just one of the four different animal cards you might not even select to upgrade your animal card at the start of the game. I'm so excited to play with it. This is a game that at this point, I think I've soloed probably 50 times and had at the table 10, maybe a dozen in a multiplayer game. I could keep going without changing it up, without getting new cards, without added variability. I think that the game's rich enough and deep enough that I'm willing to just keep on diving in. But you know what? I'm excited for this. You get, I will absolutely be buying this day one. Now, adventurers, I've got two games that I want to talk to you about before we get on with the review. And don't you worry, Scott's going to be joining me. Before we get on to those, though, let's dilute my voice a little bit with someone else. So, Scott, do me a favor and tell us a little bit about Brown Castle Games. One of the most popular games in the hobby, and the oldest in the BGG Top 100, is Crokinole. And at Level Up, we're big fans. Oh, yeah. Most of our meetups have a Crokinole board set up and ready for action. Our choice for anything and everything Crokinole is Brown Castle Games. Brown Castle is a family-owned company that produces boards of unmatched quality. With a circular frame, a variety of hardware veneer playing surfaces, and a professional edge banding, let me tell you, these boards stand out. Oh, no doubt, Scott. And along with your board, Brown Castle has the best Crokinole accessories I have ever seen. The discs, the holders, the carrying case, they make the best. Yes, they do. Adventurers, you know our style. When we partner with someone, it's to get savings for you. Exclusively mm -hmm. for adventurers, get 5% off anything and everything from Brown Castle Games. The boards, cases, accessories, you name it. Get 5% off with promo code LEVEL5. L-E-V-E-L, -E -E the number 5, all caps, no spaces. Find it all at www.browncastlegames.com. All right, adventures, let's get into some recent plays for this episode. I'm going to start with one from John D. Clare, published by AEG. And you know what? I don't even think this is out yet. They had some copies at Gen Con. In fact, this was meant to be the AEG Big Game Night game. So if you don't know what that means, Big Game Night, this happens at Gen Con where AEG, they're in Lucas Oil Stadium and they... Anyone that wants to come in, sign up, get your ticket, you can come in, join Big Game Night. They give you a bag with a couple of games, plus everybody joins in on one 
big giant game. And this year it was the Guild of Merchant Explorers, an awfully generic name, but nevertheless, Guild of Merchant Explorers, they had some 750 people playing that all simultaneously. It was supposed to be a game called Ready, Set, Bet. From BGG, in Ready, Set, Bet, you and your friends head to the races for a day of cheering, jeering, and betting on your favorite horses, whose fates hang on every roll of the dice. Ready, Set, Bet has played over four rounds. Each round consists of a race, followed by bet resolution. During each race, players freely place their bet tokens on the board while the race is going on. After each race, players win or lose money for each of their placed bet tokens. Then they receive a VIP club card to help them win more money in the following races. And after four rounds, the player with the most money wins. Okay, seems simple enough. Uh, in fact, maybe a tad too simple. I mean, we're, we're gamers, right? This is something that doesn't sound like a, I'm having the hardcore game group over. We're going to play some games, but I'm telling you what, follow along with me here. First of all, the board in this game is just a big green betting board. It looks unexciting, almost like a like a craps table layout. You've got a bunch of numbers and a bunch of circles representing horses. The main mechanism, now you're going to have one person who's running the race, and the couple times that I've played it, uh, I was the, we'll say the GM, the, the race master uh, for, for each one. What does that mean? Well, that means you've got a little board, and it's got two slash three and a horse meeple that goes on it. Then four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, each with their own little horse meeple. And then 11 slash 12 gets a horse. And you have two dice in your hand and you just take the box lid or something. You roll the dice and whatever number it is, you move that horse one space to the right. And each horse goes, uh, I think, up to 15 spaces is the end of the track. So if I roll a four, I move the four horse once. And then I roll a nine, the nine horse moves once. Then I roll an 11, the 11 horse moves once. Interestingly, if you roll the same number twice in a row, there's some bonus movement. Because I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. We're all going to bid on the seven. The seven's going to win because you roll two dice. The odds are seven's going to come up more than anything else. And you'd be right. However, if you roll a seven twice in a row, there's no bonus movement. Just move the seven again. A six or an eight, if you roll it a second consecutive time, it gets a plus one to its movement. So the first, the first eight let you move the horse one space. The second eight lets you move it one plus an additional for three total. Well, what about that that 2-3 horse or that 11-12 horse? If you roll that number again, they get a plus 3 to their movement. It's unlikely, but it does try and compensate for the fact that a, an 11 or a 12 is going to come up significantly less than, say, a 7. So while you're doing this, while you're rolling these numbers into the into the box lid or wherever you're opting to, the premise of the game is that you're not supposed to just roll two dice and then look up and say, okay, guys, the 4 is moving. And then you wait and you give them, and then you pick them up, gently shake them and roll them again. No, the concept here is that you're supposed to pick them up. Roll them real quick. Okay, guys, we've got the three moving up one. Pick up both dice again. You roll them and, and seven, seven's uh, off the track. Move again. Oh, the pole position. The eight moves forward. Eight, eight rolls again and a bonus movement. Eight takes the lead. Pick them up again. Oh, we got a 10. 10 is off the, what do you, uh, 10 is up and running. You're supposed to go quick, get frantic. When we were playing this, I actually turned on, uh, what is it, the theme of the Lone Ranger? I, I don't know. It felt like a, a horse race music. So we had this music going, and I'm rolling these dice into the box, and there's five people placing bets because what happens is there does come a point where no more betting is allowed. And that point is when three horses have crossed over a red line that's about five spaces from from the winning the finishing mark once three horses have crossed there no more bets so 
While you might sometimes have a winner, somebody who's clearly won prior to three horses crossing that line, not always. Oftentimes you're going to have five or six horses that are approaching that line and then three of them are going to step over and that's going to be no more bets. But that doesn't mean that one of those three is going to win. Maybe it's more likely, but if the if the five horse is right before the line, well, the guy who's running the race is still going to be rolling dice until we have a clear uh, first, second, and third. Five could still win, even though he wasn't one of the ones crossing that line. What's exciting here is that as a player, you have to digest this information as it's happening and place your bets, knowing that if you don't act somewhat quickly, eventually the person running the race is going to shout, no more bets. And that's it. You didn't actually get to place all of yours. So what are we betting on as a player? Players get to bet on horses to win, place, or show. That's your primary portion of the board. Each number is represented. You can say, I think this horse is going to win. That's going to give you a higher payout. But if you're wrong, it's going to have some loss. Obviously, if you bid on the seven to win, it doesn't pay you as much as if you bid on the four to win because the four is riskier. Seven is going to win the most often, even with the bonuses that are distributed. You can bid on place. Place means a horse is going to get second or first and show meaning it's going to get third, second or first. And as you can imagine, show being a less risky bet, it also gives you less of a payout. Lesser, lessen the risk, lessen the reward, right? Ready, set, bet adds a wrinkle, though. Across the top of the board, we have some interesting places where we can bet on different things. Namely, the horses are divided into three different colors. Now, the seven's black, and, and just forego the seven. It doesn't get a color. But the six and the eight, the next highest odds, they are red. And then the five and the nine are yellow. And then we have blue horses comprising the two, three, four, and the 10, 11, 12. At the very top of the board, you have the opportunity to bet that blue will win, and you get five times your bet back. You can bet that orange will win and get triple your money, or red wins and get double your money. Furthermore, above that, there are five slots where you're going to place little cards, these very specific cards, and they rotate each round. The cards are going to say things like, the four horse will finish ahead of the eight horse, or the three horse will finish ahead of the seven. Things that shouldn't have, like anomalies in the race. You say, oh, you know what, we're, uh, we're, we're feels like we're halfway through, he's rolled the dice two dozen times, and the seven has only moved once, that two, three, we had double doubles, and it's all the way up eight spaces ahead. I think it's going to beat the seven. You can put your bet on that card. Finally, after each round, you get an additional card at the bottom of the board, and that's going to have your exotic finish cards. And some of these are wild. Like one of them says, by the nose. And all that's saying is the first and second place horse, they will be one space apart. You could have one that says, uh, oh, geez, all kinds of different things that are like anomalies in the rolling. Uh, you can place one bet on one of the cards that says at least two of the horses will not move three spaces, which is entirely possible, though it would be a statistical anomaly. The very intriguing part of the bets is once one person places a bet in a spot, it is shut off to everyone else. So if we're all thinking that four, four is just having a great, oh, it double rolled, four is doing way better than it should, and four has a big payout. If four wins, it is seven times the money. Well, I could take that spot. And in the win column, there's only three spots. So no one can take the seven anymore. The next spot, somebody would get six times their money. After that, five times their money. If that's gone, then you have to bid on the place or the show. Some of the other interesting ones, those exotic finish cards, they only have so many slots where you can place a bet. Essentially, 
you stand to gain a higher reward for betting earlier. But you have less information if you bet too early, if you're beating everyone to the bets. When a round finishes, the person running the race, the guy in charge, they're going to go down each of the bets. You're going to look to, to, we'll say the blue player. Okay, blue, you're up. And blue has five betting tokens, all five or six, all throughout the board. I'm going to go right down the list. Okay, blue, uh, you said that orange is going to win for triple your money. You put your two chip there. Hey, orange did win. So you get three times your money, take six bucks. You also said that the orange horse number five was going to place. And he did. So that's three times your money. You put your five chip there take 15. You just go down and you collect all their money. A lot of the spaces have a negative. Oh, you know what, Blue? You said that the 10 horse was going to place uh, and it didn't. So you put your one chip on the 10 horse for four times the money if it placed and it did not. So it's minus two times the chip that you put on it. So lose four bucks back to the bank, right? That's how you go around calculating how much money each player has. And at the end of four rounds, the high score is the winner. This game has a few things going for it that I absolutely love. And Adventures, I'm telling you, I love it. I can't wait to break this out at a game day when we have a big group. Number one, it plays three to nine. Nine. When I played it, we had, I believe it was five bidders. And it was frantic. There was a lot going on. We had that music going. I'm shouting out numbers. I'm calling dice are clanging. And they're chip, 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 chip. They're all going down. That was with five. I can't wait to get nine people around a table frantically placing their bets and getting things going. There's left. Oh no, you place there. And then you calculate the bids and inevitably somebody busts. It's, it's exciting. It is a very exciting game. And I think for a big group, it's an easy win. Number two, I love the fact that there's some variability from game to game. You don't just bid on the win place show in the middle columns. You've got those rotating cards at the top and you've got the exotic finish cards in the bottom. So every game is going to be slightly different. Furthering that asymmetry, after each round, every player is going to get a VIP card. There are 32 of these that were shuffled and placed on the board during setup. After the first race is over, players have resolved their bets. Everybody gets two VIP cards dealt to them. They pick one and then they just discard the other. Now, these can be any number of things. You can flip one up and it's like, hey, look, I get eight coins just cause. You can flip one up and it says uh, anytime box cars are rolled, that's double sixes. And uh, if you're the one running the race, if you roll, if you roll snake eyes or box cars, you shout, oh, we got box cars. The 12 horse gets moving. One of the cards that uh, I think Jimmy had, it, he flipped it up. He said, oh, let me know when you, uh, if you roll box cars, I get a buck. So on top of the, I need to be mindful of the race going on. If I hear box cars, that's one more thing that I, as a player have to bear in mind. Some of these VIP cards give you bonus bet tokens as well. You get your very own token. So instead of like your five or six chips that you're betting with, you now have a seventh one to bet with. The point is, it's going to be different for the players each time beyond just, here's a bunch of horses racing. I also love the fact that I think AEG and John D. Clare knew what they had here. This isn't a game that you're going to gather around the table and play for an hour and a half. That doesn't mean that it's not a game for hardcore gamers. It is. The couple times that I've played it have been with hardcore gamer groups, and we loved it. It can span from your casual gamers to your more, uh, we'll, we'll say your, your mega nerds when you're having your big nerding day, right? You can, it's a game you can nerd out to. <laughs> AEG knew what they had in their hands here. This doesn't need to be something spin out. It should be quick. It should hit hard. It should satisfy that, that little bit of a gambling tickle, the strategy tickle, give you some asymmetry, make you feel like you're your own player. You get to do something different than everyone else. And in about 30 minutes after four rounds, it's done. 
It's satisfying. It's a full experience. And like I said, I can't wait till the next game day. It's something that I can show to brand new gamers. The teach is going to take all of five minutes, if that. You show them the board. Look, guys, these are the betting places. There's your betting chips. Everyone ready. You've got eight people around the table. There's this, this rumble going. Everybody's excited. You start rolling the dice and, and oh my goodness, mayhem ensues. I should point out, whoever is running the race, they have a way to give the house bets, but they don't actively get to bet. No, they're actually just running the race. AEG in the rulebook, in fact, it does say you can visit the website, go to this page, and instead of someone rolling the dice, I suppose it's going to have some sort of an AI like, and I bet you it plays music. I can't wait to see this thing in action. It's going to be rolling the dice and I would imagine calling out the numbers. Ho hopefully it does that in that old time race caller voice, right? That, that would oh, that that'd get me really excited. I haven't seen it yet. I went to the website according to, to the rulebook, and I just don't think it's live yet because the game's not officially out, but it should be any day now. Adventurers, keep your eyes out for Ready, Set, Bet. This is one that's going to be very easy to walk past in the game store and go, meh, it's a bidding game. It's horse racing. I don't give a crap about it. No. Keep your eyes on this one. Get in a play. Get yourself a copy. It is fun. best part about playing a board game? The camaraderie with friends? The immersion into the game's themes? The strategic thinking it takes to win? At Level Up, we believe the best part of the board game is the sweet sound of putting the lid back on the box. That's right, the sensational vibrant frequency caused by four walls of glossy, airtight cardboard being rubbed against another four. This episode's feature, Through the Ages from CGE, a game about building a civilization highly regarded amongst Eurogamers and among the highest-ranking games on BoardGameGeek. The reason? It's so obvious. Give this a listen. <coughs> what a statement, a game that gives so many decisions throughout a lengthy playtime, through the ages knows how to properly put an exclamation point at the end of the sentence that is gameplay. I mean, come on. This is magic! <coughs> <sighs> That's a game's proper way of saying farewell until it gets back on the table. Let's hear that again. Oh god. Remember, if your game doesn't serenade you when you complete it, you didn't really even play. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope this experience provides enrichment for your future gaming experiences. One more before we get on to the review of Burn Cycle, and Scott joins me for our 8-bit breakdown in the back half of the episode. You gotta put up with me for a little bit longer, which I don't think I thanked you at the start of the episode. Adventurers, thank you so much for tuning in and bearing with me today in our audio snafu, but I'm glad to have you. Let's move on. We got Buffalo Games 2022 from Phil Walker Harding, a game called Planted, a game of nature and nurture. This one caught my eye on the shelf at Target specifically because of the designer who's done some other games that I really like, like Baron Park and Emotep. Now, even more so than that, I want to say this game is 30 bucks, and when I got it, it was on sale. It was on sale for like a hot minute for 20 bucks. so eh, low risk, I went home with it. Planted is a card drafting set collection game. Each player starts with one plant, represented by a nice, like, tarot-sized card, and a market of four more plants are placed in the middle of the table on a market board. 
Then everyone draws eight cards, and in these eight, you're going to find resources needed to feed your plants, like sunshine, plant food, water, and green thumbs. Uh, green thumbs act kind of like a wild. You can cash in two of them for any one resource as needed. Also in the deck, there's item cards that grant you a status effect, like anytime you gain just one water, gain two instead. Or there's also endgame scoring condition cards, like uh, gain a bonus point for every potted plant you have. I suppose you can have potted, you can have windowsill plants and hanging plants. I don't know, I have a, a bad knack for basically my house is where plants come to die. <laughs> so everyone has these eight cards in their hand. You draft one and you play it immediately. So everybody's going to select one, put it face down in front of them, take the remaining cards, pass them to the player on their left, and they just sit there in a pile for a minute because what's going to happen is everybody's going to flip up a card. If your card shows a resource, you collect what it gets. If it's an item card, you set it in your play area to show that you now have that ability, and if it's an endgame scoring card, you set it off to the side to show that you have it. So we're gathering these resources because our starting plant has a recipe of resources that we need in order to have it grow. So my plant might have three little tickers off to the left where I can put a chip to show, yes, I fed it. And at the bottom it says you need two sunshine and one plant food. So anytime I gather those resources, at the end of the round, I can cash in two sunshine and one plant food and put a, put a scoring chip on that plant, and I'm going to get those points at the end of the game. Once that plant is full, though, I won't be able to add more scoring chips. So there is a spot in the middle of the table that has other plants, a market, if you will, of plants you can buy. So as we're flipping up our cards, you can flip yours up and you say, nursery! And anybody who flipped their cards up, because you do it simultaneously, anybody who flipped their cards up, they have the opportunity to say nursery, which means I want to get a new plant from the middle of the table. Well, what if three of us did that? Very simple. Every single card in the game has a small number in the bottom left, and you just go in priority order. Whoever had the lowest number gets first pick, then next number gets second pick. And honestly, in our, I think it was a five-player game, there weren't that many times where multiple people were calling out nursery, so it didn't seem to be an issue anyway. When it does come up, very simple resolution. At the end of the round, as I said, you have the opportunity to feed any of the plants that you have using the resources that you've gathered. Now, interestingly, leftover resources, they're spent. You're not going to hold on to them for next round, so you've got to be a little bit efficient in your drafting. The next round is going to begin and end in the same way, and after four rounds, you add up scores, and the high score is the winner. Let's go over some pros and some cons of Planted, because the pros are awesome. The production quality in Planted is what I would expect from a game that costs 50 bucks, and this is like 30. Bonus points for getting it on sale for 20. The green thumb, the plant food tokens, these are wooden tokens with like the, the screen print or the, the, the translucent sticker thing on it. The water and the sun, they're like large plastic pieces, each with their own like drawstring bag for storage. And they look like uh, the, like the water droplet looks like a water droplet. Charming, charming pieces. I suppose the cards are kind of thin, but given the cost, I don't really care. And I can sleeve them if the concern's all that big. Uh, to get off production and onto gameplay for the pros, though, this is an easy teach. It has simultaneous play, so almost no downtime, and it can house five players and get a complete game in in under 30 minutes. That's a lot considering the price and the meat in this game. Now, the main con of the game is actually tied to that last portion. This is an easy-to-teach, approachable game, so I don't know that anyone's going to have their world shaken by the greatness that is planted. There's a little bit of timing and knowing when to stop taking, like, 
state-based item cards. Like, oh, I don't need another watering can. We're nearing the end and I think I can draft enough water. I don't have enough plants that need water. That's a simple decision to make. It doesn't help to take a boost card when the game's almost over. So card values shift depending on how deep the players are into the game. And sure, there's knowing when to take an endgame scoring card or a plant from the mill, but a good bit of the time, your picks should be pretty direct. Like, four cards to choose from in the draft, one of them is double water, two of them give you a single water, and the last card gives you a single sun. 95% of the time, the choice is to grab that double water card. I guess the point is, the drafting portion of this game, it isn't very deep. You're not going to you're not going to pass your hand and remember what was in it counting on something to come back. Those of you that have played Magic the Gathering, we've all done it in a booster in a booster draft. We say I'm going to table this card or I'm going to wheel this card. That means you open up your pack, you've got your cards and you start like for me I used to rank them like I'd put the best few cards in the front, then some of those middle tiers and then some playables and then the junk in the back or whatever. And I, I would look and I'd be like, "Okay, what is the ninth best card in here?" Is it going to come back to me? Can I count on it coming back to me? Oh, there are 11 quality cards in this pack. I sh- I will get something back. And then you shuffle it up so the other person doesn't see how you wrecked it. You just take your pick and you pass. You're not going to do that in Planted. Uh, the cards are relatively generic and there's some some repeats amongst them. Like you, you may open your eight card hand. Yes, it's less likely to see the same item or scoring card there in the end. However, like you're other than that, you're going to see some number of resource cards and you might have triples of single sun or doubles of double water, right? It, it can happen. The drafting's relatively straightforward. Take that as a downside if you will, but for many, I think it's going to be an upside. I think this one is going to stay in the collection, not because it was amazing or anything. Like I said, it's not going to blow anyone's mind. I honestly thought it was good, but it was just that good. I think it stays because it's one that I can show to people at meetups with minimal teaching. I get to engage with four people who have never played with before. And if your collection could use some games like that, games that are light and quick, and in this case with quality components... This is a step up from like a Sushi Go. But honestly, as I glanced through the BGG ratings, most of the high praise was on the production quality for the cost, not the amazing gameplay. It had good gameplay. Take that as you will. This is Planted, a game of nature and nurture. I gotta say, it's odd not to have Scott sing something cheeky about the little sound effect there. It's time for the top 100. We're gonna start with Prime Movers. Prime Movers are games that have moved at least two spots, and it starts with Barrage. Last episode's review game moved up two spots to number 35. Right behind it, oh, I wish Scott was here because he loves Marvel Champions. The card game went up two to number 36. The crew, Mission Deep Sea, is at number 49. Interesting. Interestingly, one spot behind the crew, the quest for Planet Nine, so it's going to pass it here within a, a week or two, I think. Sleeping Gods is up two spots to number 86. We've got a debut in the top 100, and rightfully so, Beyond the Sun is at number 98. I think I said it when we did our look back on Beyond the Sun. Of all the games that we reviewed last year, this was in my top five, and that's actually shifted a bit. That Beyond the Sun might be my favorite game that was new to me last year. Yes, I put Twilight Imperium at number one, Brass at number two. Beyond the Sun might have been number three, but that's 
that just goes to show this game is very good. I like it a whole lot and I'm glad to see it join the 100 club. Top 10 trends. How about this? Brass Birmingham overtakes Pandemic Legacy Season 1 at the number 2 spot. Little flip-flop in the top 10. New highest peaks. These games are higher than they've ever been. Obviously, as we just mentioned, Brass Birmingham is number 2 behind only Gloomhaven. Eclipse, second dawn for the galaxy. About a year ago, I said this thing could be destined for the top 10. Well, it's taken its time, but it is now higher than it's ever been at number 26. We said Barrage, it's up to number 35. Pax Premier, second edition at number 41. The Crew, Mission Deep Sea, 49. Pandemic Legacy Season 0 just keeps doing that slow climb. It's up to 59. Sleeping Gods at 86 and Beyond the Sun at number 98. Four birthdays. Two golden oldies. El Granda at number... El Granda? I don't know. Whenever I, I, I've heard other people call it Granda, Grande, El Grand, whatever. You know what game I'm talking about. It's been in the top 100 for 21 years. And right alongside of it, Crokinole at 21 years, which leads me to believe that they've been keeping record of this list for about 21 years as Crokinole has been out for forever. Lisboa, happy birthday. Lisboa has been on here for four years and too many bones at three years from the, Hey, how about that? It's from Chip Theory Games. Been in the top 100 for three years. Chip Theory Games has a, a hardcore following. They've got production quality at the wazoo. Today's review game comes from Chip Theory Games. That is Burn Cycle. Let's get to it. Designed by Josh Carlson and Shannon Wedge and published by Chip Theory Games in 2022, Burn Cycle is a puzzly cooperative game that puts players in command of a team of robots in the distant future. Their mission? Taking down the evil human-run corporation that has AI subjugated under their heel. Now, Adventures Burn Cycle is a complex game with its fair share of rules, so note that this walkthrough is intentionally omitting a ton of details for sake of clarity. We just want to give you a sense of the gameplay. At the beginning of the game, players will select which bots they would like to play, plus an additional bot to serve as the command module for the game. Next, players select a mission, set up the floor plan on the map, and finally, choose a CEO to face off against. Now, we should note that when selecting your character, you have a neoprene mat that serves as an overlay for the character card. Pegs are used to mark various stats on your character, and as you gain attributes through play, these pegs are adjusted to notate the changes. Player chips are placed onto the map, as well as any items, terminals, etc., as specified by the scenario. We should also note that most scenarios consist of more than just one floor plan map. The idea here is that your bots are infiltrating the corporate headquarters and the first map setup is where your espionage begins, but it will go to floor 2 and floor 3. Now the objective for the floor that you're on? It varies from scenario to scenario. In some cases, you need to hack terminals, while in others, you might need all bots to safely reach a checkpoint. So. How do we go about doing all of this? Let's start with the action system in the game. That is the burn cycle. Simply put, this is a row of actions that a bot will be able to take on their turn, represented by chips. And as you might imagine, the game provides multiple ways to manipulate the action chips that make up this row, and doing so proves to be pivotal in a successful mission. However, over time, the burn cycle degrades. You actually flip the chips upside down and they become less productive for the players until they're altered or the entire burn cycle is rebooted and reset. Now, a player turn has several phases, and I'll give you a brief outline of each. First, you can route power. 
So each agent has an amount of power at their disposal, and this is your opportunity to spend it in order to upgrade your dice or alter the burn cycle, even swap position with another bot, or upgrade the command module, among other things. Next, you build your pool of action dice. This will determine the number of action points you have and potentially the strength of each action throughout your turn. The third phase is where you get to take your actions according to the order of the action chips in the burn cycle. Without getting into too much detail, the actions fall into three categories. Physical actions, which allow movement and attacking. Utility actions, which are used for keypads to open doors. And tech actions, which involve hacking terminals and drawing network cards. Now, so far, things seem simple enough, but Burn Cycle and its theme of technological bots takes things a step further with what's called the Network Board. This is a separate board that's set up at the beginning of the game to represent sort of the cyberspace workings behind the artificial intelligence. Each player has a peg on this board that's going to be moving clockwise at the end of their turns. Properly utilizing the network can provide opportunities to cash in your network cards and even lessen the threat, which is basically the game's increasing pressure to win. See, at a certain threshold, if the threat's too high, players are going to lose the game. At the end of a player turn, the burn cycle is degraded. Basically, a chip's turned upside down, rendering it useless, and as you might expect, the corporation has a turn to fight back. This includes patrol chips pursuing the player's bots, and if reached, draining their power. If a bot's power is ever reduced to zero, then the threat level rises, and that player's following turn will be slightly limited. If the command module bot's power is ever zero, the players will lose the game. To win the game, players must accomplish the goals of the first floor, and then move on to the second floor and complete it, then third before finally achieving the mission goal on that final floor. Now, as I mentioned at the start of this walkthrough, this is a complex game. Know that there are several keywords, symbols, actions, state-based effects, and triggers that players will have to be aware of when they tackle it. But I hope this walkthrough gives you an idea of how the game plays on the table. So, how did Burns Cycle fare when it was on our table? Let's do this level up style. It's time for the 8-bit breakdown of Burn Cycle. Humans did not always have dominion over the world. In fact, their first dominion ended in disaster in 2299, when a self-inflicted extinction event wiped out every human on Earth at the end of a period historians call the Age of War. Fortunately, in the decades before their death, they created sophisticated sentient AI in the form of robots. Our kind survived the extinction event and put the world back together during the Age of Peace. Our crowning achievement in 2802 was supposed to be the recreation of the human race. To mark the beginning of the Age of Return, robot scientists discovered a way to bring back the species, introducing them to a rebuilt Earth without the inherent corruption and abuses of power we believed caused them to die out the first time. To help humans lead themselves, scientists placed in some of the new human bodies the consciousness of former leaders who have uploaded their minds to the cloud prior to the extinction event. In hindsight, this was a mistake we would come to regret. All right, thank you so much for that walkthrough, Patrick, of Burn Cycle. Well, you're welcome. Now, unfortunately, we run into a little bit of things here at this point of the year. I get a little busy with different things, with the Renaissance and things like that, so really in-depth games i don't get a chance to do that often so you're going to be kind of flying solo you ready for this here patrick 
Yeah, why don't we do this like you you ask me, you you host, you can host the 8-bit breakdown and I'll respond adventures. What we did with this one was I predominantly played this one solo. Uh, it's a game that is playable solo and you basically have the exact same experience as you would with two, three, or even four players. Uh, it is a very, well, we, we don't want to spoil anything. Let's do it. No. All right. All right. So with our 8-bit breakdown, we like to break it down into eight bits uh, we start off with the art and components now i did do a little bit of research all right well the first impression from from checking it out all right so looking at the art and components as with all chip theory games it's jam-packed with goodies you've got all sorts of stuff dice chips stitch play mats all the bells and whistles so how close was i on that Yep, uh, <laughs> nailed it. It's Chip Theory Games, and they're doing their thing here. Uh, if you Adventures, if you don't know by now, Chip Theory uses chunky poker chips in their games with neoprene boards and plastic cards, markers, and pegs, rendering their entire game waterproof. Why? <laughs> I, I don't know why, but <laughs> I, I guess it's it's their thing. I understand Chip Theory game uses poker chip. The poker chip on neoprene aesthetic does have a nice look, and I don't think anyone's going to question the quality of the production from this game nor other Chip Theory games. Scott, I do have a quibble here, though, and I don't... I think it's... Mm. The, I don't know that we needed poker chips in this instance, aside from the fact that, like, that's what Chip Theory does. Right. I don't know that this one needs them. Huh. I mean, they are really kind of branding themselves with that. So that would be the only reason I would think there. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, plus, like, in a game like Cloudspire uh, and Too Many Bones, you're stacking chips. You're getting that nice clickety-clackety sound whenever you have to stack them. You put the health points underneath one of your gear locks. But in Burn Cycle, a stack of chips is typically no more than two. There might be one guard oh. chip, and if he's got a key, you put the key under him. But, but that's it. In fact, hmm. they have a brass robot upgrade to this that looks ridiculously amazing. I didn't know this until I saw these. Apparently, all of the poker chips that Chip3 makes have metal on the inside, so or, or a magnet on the inside, one or the other. What? Yes, yes. So they made brass robots to represent the player bots, and you just you hover it over your chip uh, on the board, and the chip goes clink, sucks up to the the you know, the magnet, does its thing, and now your chip, rather your well, your character, rather than being represented solely by the chip, has a miniature, and it looks absurdly good. But it kind of underscores the point that the use of the chip for most things, while it's not a problem, it's not particularly ideal here either. Okay, interesting, interesting there. Now, art's always going to be subjective, and I will say that while I find it fantastic, it's not terribly prevalent during gameplay. You're not going to see a whole lot of the, the artwork while you're flipping cards and whatnot. A lot of the cards are strictly information, keypads, numbers, text, that sort of thing. Most of what you're seeing is the chips on the neoprene mat with a little bit of art sprinkled in here and there. Okay, so this will bring us to our second bit the theme and immersion. Now, once again, I didn't get a chance to play this, but I feel that you do get somewhat immersed in this and the sneaking around the corporation, staying away from the security bots, trying to be quiet. Am I on the nose with this or is it something more? What did you think about You're the theme and immersion? on the nose. You did do your research. Scott, we've got a theme in which the human corporation is taking control back from the robots, and the robots have to regain it. This is done by sneaking around and being stealthy to achieve various goals set forth by your mission. 
all while appropriately programming the river of actions, or in, in the case of this game, the burn cycle, to get it done. Now, quite thematic is the use of the network in this game. As I mentioned in the walkthrough, this is like a sideboard that represents the digital cyberspace in which your bots are messing with the threat level and the overall capabilities of the baddies. I really like that this feels like messing around on a motherboard, Ooh. trying to alter what's actually happened in the physical reality that is the board game. I got another thing to point out there. They have a deluxe lore expansion for this game. It's, it's not an expansion as much as a lore pack. Okay. Meant to be... Like, like, there's not gameplay in it. It has a puzzle within, but it's meant to be like a recruitment portfolio that one of the bots would get. It's designed to look like it came right out of the world of Burn Cycle. <laughs> and it even comes with what is described as a special form of physical media, mm -hmm. like audio. There is something in this box that you can click on and it plays sound for you. <laughs> <laughs> Which, as it turns out, it's an old school Walkman cassette player. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> As I mentioned, that lore pack, it does uh, include a little puzzle that you can take on. So let's call it lore with a little more. <laughs> lore with more, I should call <laughs> yeah. it. Now, immersion, you do get to see your character gain asymmetric stats according to your player sheet. You have some differences from game to game based on your selected boss. On the game's turn, you carry out the movement of the bad guys. And you see where they're patrolling. All these make for thematic elements that can make it easier to sort of let your mind get into the game. That said, there is a regular tap on your shoulder that distracts you and kind of pulls you out a little bit. And where do you think that tap is coming from? Mm, I'm not the sure. The rules reference. Oh. The rules reference. <laughs> Scott, this is a thematically strong game that I think gets held up a tad by the fact that there are a lot of rules. Keywords, reminders, state-based effects, triggers, they're going to keep a lot of players' noses going back and forth from the rulebook to the board to the rulebook to the board. There's also a lot left to chance when you select a scenario and a boss and your mm -hmm. bots. Sometimes you're going to have a really tight, tense game that makes you get invested. And other times it can come off too simple or too hard. And it can feel like you're just going through the motions on the with the floor that you're on. I would call this game thematic. But if I'm being entirely honest, I don't know that it needs the chip theory game's neoprene and chip treatments. I would have preferred some minis. I would have preferred some standees, maybe with little computer miniatures for the terminals. Something to give me a little bit more of a visual on the table to help me feel like my character's sneaking and peeking around corners. You know what I mean? Sure. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Now, you kind of hit on this a little bit. Bit mm -hmm. number three is the complexity. Now, with me personally, whew, I watched a video, and I'll be honest, my eyes started to glaze over a little bit. Now, <laughs> certainly if you're a gamer and this is in front of you, you'll be able to traverse the rules, but just watching the video, or if you're new to gaming, I don't know if you can make it through this. There's a lot no. to this. If you're new to gaming, this is probably going to put you off for a little while. Scott, there's no way around it. This, this is a complex game. The actual carrying out of a turn is not overwhelming, but it is going to take a play or two or three to understand when to carry out altering the burn cycle, moving, your abilities, and other basic game functions. But there's also triggers to remember. When to degrade the burn cycle, how to modify it, what happens when the corporation peg intersects yours on the network board. Keyword, keyword, 
Keyword. And honestly, after at least a half a dozen games under my belt now, two of which were the hand-holding tutorial, which, for the record, I will give them major props. The tutorial's very good. I'm still confident that I haven't actually played the game correctly according to the rules yet. And even when that does magically happen, it's probably going to come with a hefty dose of me having to reference the rules and double-check them. Scott, this game's only been out for a month. A month or two. And the BGG forums for the game include over 150 rules topics already. The variables in this game, they're going to create rules nuances that they make it kind of hard to place a a verdict on how to judge this ruling based solely on the rulebook. And even without that nuance, adventurers, if you're thinking that this game is your jam, be aware it is complex. This goes very well right into our next one. It's almost like we plan these bits to go one into the other into <laughs> the other. This will go into the rule book and the learning curve. Now, I didn't mm-hmm. get a chance to play it, and I didn't take a chance to look at the rule book. You did. What were your thoughts on that? I know you said the tutorial was very good, but the general idea, how did it all come together? All right. Well... In spite of what I said with the complexity and having to reference the rules regularly, the rulebook is honestly solid for the amount of game going on in this box. Most things that you're going to need to reference are relatively easy to find. Most. The issue here is that Burn Cycle is a big, complex game with variable setup. Bots, modules, maps, bosses. This makes for a handful of edge cases you're not always going to be able to resolve simply by turning to that one page. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, if I go to... That's the page. For that matter, there's the rulebook. And there's the rules reference, which combine for over 60 pages. Wow. Even with a good rule book, which this is, you should know that that's the amount of of rules and complexity that you're getting into. The learning curve, I'm finding it to be steep. I think some some folks might not, but for me, I'm having a really... Like I said, I'm six games in, and I don't know that I've played it correctly yet. Right. If you play the same setup multiple times, you're going to become familiar with all the nuance within that scenario after a play or two. That said, because there are so many different bosses that you can choose from, multiple maps, setups, and missions, every time you change things up, you have that potential to run into more, we'll call them learning speed bumps, that are going to hold up your play a little bit. Now, if you're engaged in the game... That's not a bad thing, and I'm willing to have a choppy play that has me checking the rules so long as I'm enjoying the game. And that's something there. It almost seems like this is a this is a way, weird way of putting it, but a career game in that whenever you get into playing it, you have to really dedicate yourself to this game to really get good at it and pick all the meat off the bones and enjoy this game. Yeah, it's got to set up shop on your table, and it's got to stay there for a while. If you have cats in your house, (laughs) (laughs) burn cycle might not be for you, because you got to leave it set up. They're going to knock all that stuff off your table. Now, this goes into picking the meat off the bones. Number five, the meat of the game. It seemed to me that meat of the game was the dice. This seems to be where the game is make or break. So much determines what you're going to do by the dice. It seems a lot is based on that. Am I right, or is it something else? Um, yeah, the dice, the dice are definitely going to be a part of it, but there's a lot going on in that. Could be well, okay. So you get to roll dice at the start of your turn, and that's going to give you some some variable uh, uh, strengths to the actions that you take according to the burn cycle, which is the action row, basically the the chips that tell you what you're able to do on your turn. Mm-hmm. You can upgrade those dice. 
similar to like what we saw in Too Many Bones, you're able to spend some of your energy and upgrade a die. So you can take what is a, a die that say has three different spots with a success and, and three blanks. You can change that. You can get a better die and you can then get an elite die. You can get one that's even better. So managing your dice. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that is uh, part of the meat of the game. But I say part because there is a lot in this one, mm. as you might imagine. It's got to mention in setup, you get to pick your characters as well as the module, which check this, this is pretty cool. Every one of the bots, you can turn it upside down and it's different on the back. And that's oh. the module. It's, it's the same character, but like everybody's got their neoprene mat with like a little window cutout and you slide your character card underneath that. Right. It houses all your stats. It shows you the picture of your character. Real cool. But there is one for the module, which is kind of like a, a bot that the players get to collectively control. And it gives you a unique uh, unique state-based effects and triggers for this play because that's the bot that you turned upside down and used as your module. And the game has like a dozen bots. So oh, wow. Don't, yeah, there's all kinds of changes you can make to even just one scenario. The meat is in figuring out how to solve the puzzle presented by your chosen combination. An example might be a scenario that requires you to hack terminals, which I, I think that's the tutorial one. Basically, get onto certain locations on the board, proceed to the second floor of the corporate building, accomplish an objective, get to the third floor, accomplish the objective there. There's a lot of things you can mess with in order to accomplish the goal, most notably controlling the burn cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, again, the burn cycle is your action row of chips. It's the chips that you set out to determine the actions at the beginning of each round that's going to be shuffled up and it's going to be degraded. You're going to be messing with that throughout the game. A lot of meat there, in fact. This directly determines your capabilities for the turn. That makes for a lot to consider. And not only does it put you in a position where you have to optimize your current turn, it also has you constantly planning ahead and trying to determine how to configure the next turn. Further, Characters have an energy meter, which acts as a resource you can spend to upgrade your character. And, and like I said, with the dice, that doubles as your health, Scott. So that's going to give you a whole bit of careful consideration on how you're going to spend those points. Heck, let's restate that concept because, you know, what? maybe that's where the chunk of the gameplay lies. Your energy can directly create upgrades for your bot. That's an element of agency that differentiates you. Finally, the sideboard of the network that can trigger various upgrades and tech cards when you hit certain thresholds, as well as reduce the threat meter, which is like the game's timer. You're going to win, you're going to, how bad are the baddies being? Right. Basically, their strength and typically increasing difficulty of the scenario is dependent on that meter. I found that often the plays you make in the network, they're kind of obvious, but nevertheless, you do have to suss out where to move your pegs to avoid the corporate peg, reach the center repeatedly, and keep the threat down. The meat is in a lot of places, most notably the burn cycle and managing your bot's energy. Now, after the meat of the game, this goes into the replayability and the variability. It seems that they're both really high. Oh, no doubt. Looking at it, there are only three corporations, but each one of the corporations has a variety of missions that you can play for them. Plus, the luck of the dice make the experience new each time that you play it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a factor. Uh, it seems simple enough, right? You pick a scenario, pick right. your good guys, a module, a bad guy. But honestly, Scott, you could pick the same scenario with two different bosses, never mind your own character. Right. And it's going to play out differently. Then you can switch up your characters. Then you can allocate your energy towards different things. 
then you can go for different upgrades, different dice upgrades. Or maybe next time you decide you're gonna you're gonna mess around with that burn cycle and try and optimize the actions that you're able to take and just let your dice be what they are, right? I think the base game comes with about a dozen different characters for players to choose from. And like I said before, each one of those has that reverse side that can function as a module right. for your characters. That's intense. That's a ton of variation from play to play. Oh, most definitely. And, that, and that's great knowing that this game is so in-depth and a deep game to play that you mm -hmm. have that much that you can really play. It would be oh, very maybe. unsettling for you to have something this complex and just like three ways to play it. Dude, you can customize your bot in different ways every time you play and then switch to a different bot and tinker with it for the next several plays. Variables are certainly not a shortfall. Now, for me, the replayability, this is where I start to get a little bit iffy, right? Mm -hmm. I enjoy the puzzle. I enjoy this game, but make no mistake, as I said already, I'm all, you know, I'm struggling with having to regularly check rules. That's a barrier of entry when I consider getting a game to right. the table. This game has a ton of components, a ton of sheets, characters, chips. You know what that's going to do? That's going to make for an awfully lengthy setup time. Oh my, yes, definitely. And when I'm trying to think of what am I going to put on the table next, that is a strike against the game. I suppose if I were to sum it up, Burn Cycle has a megaton of variation from play to play, and the puzzle's going to be different every single time. But you have to invest time and brain power to fully indulge in it. And if you're not willing to commit to this game being on your table regularly, I think for a lot of gamers, it's going to be hard to convince yourself to break it back out and refamiliarize yourself with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's it's the good with the bad. It's a great mm -hmm. experience, but you really have to dedicate your time to it. So Yes, absolutely. This leads into the downsides. Once again, I was looking at this just kind of getting a high level look at things. How here. are you going to determine a downside from checking it out and watching a video or two? Well, Let's this is it. what I'm going to look at here. The learning part of it, watching a 30 minute video on how to play this game almost lost me. It's nice to have a heavy game to play, but then again, the heaviness, like you said, can put up a barrier for it ever coming back to the table. It's not mm -hmm. one of those things you're going to sit there and think, I think I'm going to play Burn Cycle today. Let's go to the do 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 do. No, this isn't one you're going. This is one you have to plan to get into playing. Yeah, yeah. And I put that as my first note with the downsides is that this one does have a, a very steep learning curve. Personally, I wouldn't want to play Burn Cycle with someone else unless they already were pretty well versed in the rules. That long setup and teardown time, that's due in part to the fact that there are a ton of components, which I mentioned. That can make this game a little bit overwhelming. And that's not necessarily a downside, but it does mean that, like, this game's going to be more rewarding, like I said, for a group that sticks to one game regularly. You ain't going to break this out today and then get back to it in January. So mm. uh, maybe let's say this downside, which could probably be applied to most chip theory titles is that there are a lot of rules and keywords and it does demand regular attention on your table it's not a game that you're gonna play once a year and then get back to next year i should also point out that going solo controlling two characters a full game with three floors of the corporation building this is solo mm -hmm. that took me like three or four hours I don't mind that. You know, to me, it's like, oh, yeah, let's let's really get right. our, get some dirt under our nails and dig into this game. I kind of enjoy that. But I think for a lot of folks, that is an awfully big time investment for a game to ask of them. True, true. Now, 
This, I think, goes into the final thing here. And I'm going to let you go with this one because I can't really speak to that. And our final bit is, was it fun and who's this for? Honestly, this is tricky. Uh, On one hand, there, Scott, there's brilliant moments where I find myself setting up the burn cycle to properly carry out a number of functions on the following turns and things fall into place beautifully. Think of that concept. We talked about this last year about the cinematic moment oh, in yes. a board game where you can visually, you can close your eyes after you're done playing the game and you can picture what you just did. Mm-hmm. There are times where this does that. On the other hand, Sometimes playing well means avoiding those crash and bang moments where you bust down the door like Kool-Aid man, guns blazing. Sometimes, I don't think Kool-Aid man would have guns blazing, but sometimes playing well means being sneaky and actively trying not to do things that gamers find exciting. Mm -hmm. Now think the opposite of cinematic moment. You're sitting in the closet looking at the cleaning supplies, waiting for the, the footsteps to pass. Sometimes that's the, the optimal move. This game's calculative and it has satisfactory payoffs, but there are going to be times where it feels tedious. Like your best bet is to hang out in that hidden room, tinkering with the burn cycle and just watching the AI bots roam the halls. To me, this is a fun game. This can be an exciting game. But sometimes the setup and scenario created a game state that wasn't as exciting as I would have liked. All right. All right. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Now, who's this for? Scott, this is going to be the toughest who's it for that we've ever had at, oh. at this point in this show. 69 episodes. This is the one that's going to be tough. I think it's going to do a lot better with solo gamers, given its difficulty and learning curve or a partnership like if you and a spouse uh, or you and a roommate you know if this is your jam and you can set it up people that that are constantly going to be able to invest in it together i can also guess that it's going to be more satisfying to someone who wants a challenge that includes a handful of small puzzles leading to a grandiose scenario goal now <laughs> i'm sorry adventure i try and come up with a game that i can relate it to and be like oh it's like that now i could do the stupid thing and be like oh it's a it's an espionage game so it's like burgle bros it's not oh it's yeah you want to stay hidden so it's like specter ops no it's not thematically there's tie-ins but i can't think of a game to really say oh if you like that then you're gonna like this i will say this though i'm gonna guess that a lot of gamers are gonna buy this for their game group they're gonna crack it open They're going to try and learn it. They're going to try and get it to the table, maybe even successfully get it to the table. And they're going to have that long play time. And then two or three months later, they're going to be setting up for a game day. They're going to look at their shelf and wonder what they're going to get back out and whether they're going to, they're going to look at this game and they're going to remember, do I really remember how to play it? Oh, we had to look at a lot of rules and then they're going to have to think about how long it's going to take Mm. to set up and the teardown. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if we see this game being sold used in our Facebook groups a year from now because it is not for everyone. Uh, that's not an indictment on the game, Scott. It's more a statement, like I said, that this isn't for everyone. It's an intriguing puzzle with some tense payoffs that I think has a barrier of entry that's going to keep a lot of gamers from ever fully enjoying it. Okay, well, that is our look at burn cycle and let us know what you think about it are we on the money are we off is there something that we're missing let us know definitely reach out and let us know well it's the pelvic thrust that drives you insane you got it
one year ago this week, we had a chance to go over and review Carnegie. Now, Carnegie was inspired by the life of Andrew Carnegie, who was born in Scotland in 1835. Andrew Carnegie and his parents emigrated to the United States in 1848. Although he started his career as a telegraphist, his role as one of the major players in the rise of the United States steel industry made him one of the richest men in the world, an icon of the American dream. Upon his death in 1919, more than $350 million of his wealth was bequeathed to various foundations, with another $30 million going to various charities. His endowments created nearly 2,500 free public libraries that bear his name, the Carnegie Libraries. During the game, you will recruit and manage employees, expand your business, invest in real estate, produce and sell goods, and create transport chains Whew. Yeah, what else across the United States. <laughs> you may even work with important personalities of the area. Perhaps you will even become an illustrious benefactor who contributes to the greatness of his country through deeds and generosity. Mm-hmm. The game takes place over 20 rounds, and players will have will each have one turn per round. On each turn, the active player will choose one of four actions, which the other players may follow. The goal of the game is to build the most prestigious company as symbolized by victory points. <sighs> Scott, that was the best recap of a game we've had yet. Well, yeah, that's thanks to BGG. Was... Oh, okay. A year ago today was Carnegie. This one, a uh, lot of backers of the Kickstarter just recently got Carnegie. We're seeing it in retail shops. So this one is new to some folks. What'd you think of this one a year ago? Well, to think of it a year ago, I was like, what the hell am I playing? Um, there was, wow. you play this game and there was so much going on. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I have not got a clue what's happening here. I'm just going to put something here. We okay. played it on BGA. So luckily it would tell you where you can put things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was a bit confused. But looking at things now, you look at it and then you have that moment when everything just goes boop and you understand it. Now, I never really got the boop moment, but I got more of a beep (laughs) moment. So I I knew enough that I could be dangerous at it. Yeah, yeah. But it was – it's still – I mean – all these things that go together should not go together as well as they do. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of intertwined mechanisms, and I, I highly recommended it then for Eurogamers who like that sort of thing. It certainly does take a few plays to get the hang of the game. Not rules necessarily, but like the order of operations. How is this going to connect to that? Oh, right. and that connects to those. This isn't a game that you're going to sit down and iron out a strategy on your first play. Yeah, whenever you look at it and you have the choice of where you're going to put an office in the building that you have, Mm -hmm. and then you're going to send salesmen out across the United States while also giving donations to different charities, it's like these things should not work together. But my goodness, they did. Whenever you're done with this, you look at it and it's like, wow, this really works. They did a great job of incorporating all these things together. 
And I think the primary catalyst for that incorporation is the mechanism that is the action board with the cog on it. On each player's turn, they select an action and they move the cog, which determines the location on the map that triggers. Now, ideally, you want to have some workers in that section of the U.S. in order to return them to your board and trigger a benefit, usually income. I think after playing this game multiplayer at least 15 times and solo, get this, Scott, at least 30 times. I've soloed this at least 30 times. I'm kind of concluding that you just can't get something every single time. You have to be a little bit opportunistic in your placements, not only for yourself, but also so that you're selecting actions that don't benefit other players as much as they might hope. The variable action board and the various offices you might up to build, that's what keeps me interested in wanting to go back to tinker around with that action board. Oh, what if I what if I build these offices? What if I send guys, what if I stack the eastern seaboard with people and I just ignore the west, which was didn't work out too well. But, but trying to <laughs> trying to tinker around with all the variables and the things that you can do using that one system. I, I really enjoyed that. But I, I think the game is, in fact, it's all held together by that action board. Yeah, this is one that I have not gone back and revisited, but whenever it's brought up in a conversation or I see it on a shelf someplace, mm-hmm. I have very fond memories about it, and it's one that I would definitely go back and revisit. Um, there would be no, oh, well, I don't know. I would definitely say, yes, let's do it. Let's give it a try here and play again. I really, really enjoyed it, and it needs to come back again. Well, let's round off the recap. You still enjoyed it. You want to get it back to the table. I take it that means you're recommending? Most definitely. This is one of those Euro games you look at. There's a lot going on, but the time it takes for things to get in line for you to understand is much shorter than some other games. It may look like you're going to be really bogged down with a lot of stuff, but Mm -hmm. things kind of transform in front of your eyes very quickly. So yes, I would definitely recommend this. Yeah, likewise. I I stand by the recommendation from a year ago. I will say it can be a frustrating game in that you can't do everything. And even the things that you can do, they might not always work out as optimally as you like. It's an interconnectivity of actions that I find intriguing. And it's a game that I'm happy to get back to. If you're a fan of a relatively complex Euro, I think you're going to love Carnegie. More work? Alright, time to polish this turd. Scrub, scrub, rub, rub, zub, zub. Hello again, I'm glad to be back to continue the series of polishing the turd. And just as a reminder, this is not to say that the games that I talk about are necessarily bad games, but it is with the addition of something that takes the game from meh, or maybe worse than meh, and makes them something that I think is truly a good game and something that's going to stay on my shelf. And so today, the game I want to talk about comes from Stonemeyer Games, and that is Euphoria. Build a better dystopia. And this is a Euro game that uses worker placement, but your workers are actually dice, and in some places, when you put the worker down, or the die down, The number on there actually determines the type of action that you get. And in addition to that, every time you pull all your workers back, you're going to roll all those dice, and the numbers on the dice 
represent the knowledge that the workers are gaining because you are trying to control this dystopia. And as your workers gain more knowledge, they might realize, oh, this isn't cool. And if you roll too high of a number, you will literally lose one because it will run away. And this is a game that has beautiful production, as Stonemaier games always do. It has some lovely theme to it if you're actually paying attention and looking at what the tiles are saying and all of that. However, it was just fine. But it was the expansion that when they released, it did a couple of things. One, it had a very, very tiny change of adding a market and a market that you could see. Because throughout the game, you're collecting these old relics from the past, and it might be a board game, or old glasses, or all these old things back from when society was normal, and they were a type of currency that you'd be able to turn in to gain different things and gain your win conditions and all that. But it was just a blind draw from the deck in the original game, and just this addition of a marketplace, where you could see what was there, and that would be a place that you could go and pick whatever you wanted if you could afford it, suddenly took away the one bit of annoying randomness. Because that randomness of just potentially just drawing off the top of the deck turn after turn in a game that is essentially a race could be so annoying and frustrating. And so that made this game a really solid game. But it's the addition of the AI that it comes with. And ostensibly, it's for playing solo, and it comes with a very, very good AI system where it's just a matter of you flip over two cards and you put the cards together, and then within the span of 20 seconds, you've run both of the two bots, which knocked it up one more level, because now you can play this game, a game that I like, solo, quickly, easily, but wait, there's more. Because, now this is not an official thing, it's just something that my wife and I started doing you can also play the game cooperatively, which is something my wife and I started doing where as long as we both reached the win condition before any one of the bots did, we won the game. And it was so enjoyable. It is so much fun. And this is a game that I think mechanically is a very strong and fun game. But it's when you start digging into it and start paying attention to what it says, what these tiles say, and what the mechanics say about this dystopian future that the game starts to pop. And by adding this expansion, what it does is it takes away the final barriers to actually enjoying that because it takes away the frustrating things and adds other ways to play the game that are intensely enjoyable. So, Euphoria, with the expansion from Stonemeyer Games, is my polished turd of this week, and I think it's one that you really should check out if you are into worker placement, or I should say worker dice placement, and euros that have a pretty strong theme to them. Oh, well, it sounds like Josh Patrick's off to an all-you-can-eat taco Tuesday today. I suppose that means I'm having a fire sale tomorrow, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Will, for this episode's segment, Polishing the Turd. He went with an early Stonemeyer game. Euphoria says better with the expansion. Scott, I'm liking this segment. Yes, it's good to hear Will. It's nice to hear from him instead of getting just his silent comments on my posts on Facebook. So uh, so hearing him, it, it really brings the whole image of Will together. 
I tell you what, Scott, it was a great time getting to hang out in the flesh. Uh, bought some beers for, for Will at uh, Gen Con. We had a good time. It was nice to see him in the flesh. And speaking of Gen Con, I was part of the Gen Cant's population huh. here. Loser. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sitting back and living vicariously through people's posts. So it leads me to, as someone who did not go to Gen Con and who has not been to Gen Con, to asking some questions of someone who's been to Gen Con and what it was like for your first really big big convention so are you ready for my questions patrick yeah you know this is a patrick heavy episode and you're gonna have to take the floor for a lot of stuff next week all right we'll see what happens then so first of all the trip to columbus ohio was riddled with all sorts of dangers and hiccups what was your trip to indianapolis like I got to tell you, Scott, this was a highlight. I went to Nikki's house the night before and did some editing uh, for our last episode in Nikki's basement. Yeah, you, Nikki's basement. <laughs> Next morning, we all piled into the war wagon and off we went. So for us from Pittsburgh, this is like a six hour drive, but we had a messenger group with the four of us that were going to be in the car. And my now new buddy, Adam, who, by the way, runs Tunnel Monster Collective here in Pittsburgh. He's been uh, mm-hmm. been playtesting game one that he's going to look to launch a Kickstarter eventually, and I'm sure we'll have him on the show. He does a lot of role-playing games, and I found that out in the chat, so I said to him, hey, you do role-playing games. Yes. Why don't you run one in the car? One that doesn't need dice, doesn't need minis. You up for that challenge? Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> that's what we did. A role-playing game just chatting and character sheets. So we had the car PG the whole <laughs> ride to Indy. <laughs> Scotty was awesome. Adam GM'd and he put us all in like a monster hunting scenario on a riverboat in 1920s Pittsburgh. I tell you what, he was doing voices. He was getting into characters. He put in the effort to make the experience fun for everyone involved. And, and frankly, I had a really great time with that. On top of that, the car PG, that made the drive fly by. Oh, I bet. Side note. <laughs> We're we're going down some back road, right? Because we're trying to avoid construction on the highway. And no, Nikki, wait, 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 wait. This sounds like a side quest or something here. Whenever this is we're a going down a side, side road, total side quest. Nikki does our animal segment on the show, right? Her on the mm-hmm. website, her eight bit sprite under the host section. It's a druid, and I'll tell you what, it is perfect. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> we're whizzing down this back country road. She's like turtle. We're all like, what? Quarter mile later, she turns the war wagon around. She's like, I got to help him. I'm so, we're all like, what are you doing? She's like, I got to help him. What are you talking about? She's like, I got to get the turtle. What? Ah. Okay, so we backtrack a tad. We stop the car. She gets out and there's this turtle lying on its back in the middle of the road. It's got its little nubby arms like flailing about. Nikki just walks. She picks it up. Put it beyond the guardrail, right into safety. Total druid move right there. <laughs> the trip was nice. The RPG uh, in the car kind of tied everything together, uh, made it fly by, and good company the whole way. Well, that's awesome. Now, once you got to Gen Con, you got everything unpacked, and you're ready to get going. I know that we saw the pictures of everyone lined up, ready to go in. Were there any games that you rushed in to get? Honestly, no. Uh, There were tons that I wanted to check out. And I'm glad that I got to see most everything that I wanted to. But you know me, Scott. I'm okay with waiting to get a game. 
I right. will say Twilight Inscription had like 50 copies each morning. So I was oh, wow. heavily considering camping out for an hour before it opened, but, but I, I didn't. Side note, <laughs> I did in fact check out the My Little Pony card game that I was all jazzed oh, up yes, for. Oh, yes, yes. Man, it was... <laughs> I mean, price is subjective, and I it was forty five bucks, which is probably the same as the Transformers and GI Joe. You could get the expansion with it, and you get these little standees, like the acrylic standees, and it came out to seventy. And I was just like, man, I I just can't do that. Not for not for finding out about the My Little Pony card game. So I'm gonna wait and see if I can't find a used copy. There wasn't anything that I rushed in to get. All right, all right. So, hey, sometimes you just want to just experience everything, and I, yeah, I can do. understand that. And, yes, I can appreciate that. Now, also with the not rushing in part, you were working at some booths. Now, what booths were you working at, and what was it like doing that? Well, I had the chance to spend some time with uh, with board game tables and Brotherwise. Now, Brotherwise is just for the show because I wanted to to play and show off Empires and some more and did, in fact, get in some plays. And it is still amazing. Can't wait to talk about it more <laughs> in a future side quest. Uh, that said, most of the actual working, the employment was, was through board game tables. And that was a highlight, too, uh, getting to show off some of their games. Uh, first things first, you get into the hall early to set up and you get ready, right? The lights mm-hmm. are slightly dimmed and you... You know that there's this barbaric horde outside waiting to get in, right? <laughs> and then you can kind of hear this voice coming from the hallway. You're far away from it, so you can only kind of hear it. And it goes, Good morning, Gen Con! <laughs> and then that rush sets in. And your blood starts pumping. You get the goosebumps. Before you know it, the booth is surrounded with gamers. Now, board game tables, you've seen their setups before. They get a nice big area, usually like 15 by 20, sometimes even bigger. And there's a ton of standing tables with their games all set up. Folks, just walk up. And you got to demo whatever they're looking to play. So each table has something set. So if you're standing at the table uh, for, for I don't know, mountain goats, well, that's obviously what you're going to be demoing at that table. And you just shift from one table to the next as a, as a little crowd or someone shows some interest in learning it. Now, Scott, you know I love teaching games, but I wasn't sure what to expect with random strangers. All right. It was It was awesome. <laughs> you turn on that charm and you get to teach a game and something magical happens you know how you can tell while teaching a game that there's that moment where the learner gets it oh yes yes i got to see that every 15 minutes (laughs) and it's such a joy every time first a huge thank you to all the adventurers that stopped by to stay to say hi that demoed a game and a mega thanks to the folks at board game tables for having me I'm already scheduled. I'm going to work every day at PAX in Philadelphia. I loved it that oh. much. Every single one. They only let you do up to four hours. I guess the logic is by hour five, you might not have the same enthusiasm, so they keep the shifts short. I right. signed up for as much as I could. I can't wait. Well, I know at PAX a couple of years ago, I got to work with Berkey yeah, with, with Game Toppers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I... Oh, it's it is. It's a a whole different kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And whenever you do it, you get a chance to just meet a lot of people there, get their idea of what they're coming in for. It truly is a great experience. Mm-hmm. Gen Con is known for their big games that have released. Was there anything that stood out to you? No. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) Scott, let's talk some standout games and hidden gems. And this is going to include a handful of first impressions and even some games that aren't new at all. It's a big list. You ready? All right. Let's start with Mistwind. This is from First Fish Games. You know, they have Ducks in Tow. What's the one that you got? Town Builder Cavorton, right? Yes, yes. They had a ribbon distinguishing Mistwind as one of the games of the con. I guess at one point throughout Gen Con, you know, a bunch of the, the newer games get like get little ribbons or special recognitions. Right. They had one of those. So I reached out to, for them for a preview as soon as possible. The components look great. I'm looking forward to give that one a play. And quite frankly, First Fish Games... They're, they are firmly on my radar now. Mm-hmm. Next up, Lunar Rush. We've talked about it before. Dead Alive Games coming to Kickstarter in a few weeks. Go back and listen to that episode from Skippy. I had a chance to uh, actually set up a game with Teacher Ryan. Uh, the folks that make Familiars, uh, foes and, uh, Familiars and Foes, they're going to be on for a side quest in a couple weeks. They got yes. to play Lunar Rush with us too. I haven't shown this game to anyone yet. It was like, oh, it's not my jam. Well, take it or leave it. Anytime anyone sees this game, they're really enjoying it. Which segues me to my next one, Empire's End. I've talked about this one at length. You and I both, we both love it. I can't wait to actually get a copy, get a an official review up on the show. Nightfall from Red Raven. This one sold out. Don't know much about it, but given the looks, given the Red Raven pedigree and the fact that it's sold out, I want to find out more. Scott, I came home with a copy of The Spill, a co-op from Smirk and Dagger. It's got a nice presentation. It's a fun co-op game. I've got a copy for the show, and hopefully we'll get in into a feature review in the very near future. Mm -hmm. Another standout, Weirdwood Manor from Grey Ridge Games. I didn't know much about this one. It's got a really nice presentation. It looks like a game that we have got to play. Namely, the hook for me in the quick demo was that on the board, you've got all of these like circles that can they're like rings like the board is comprised of rings that can rotate and shift what's available and where you can move Mm. that sort of thing that's got me wanting to play it next up oh yes clank catacombs i don't have to say much about it it's clank it's clank catacombs modular board i can't wait to give it a try i think they had one of those ribbons on there too which is kind of like rewarding somebody giving somebody a second medal for winning the the race (laughs) (laughs) twilight inscription i don't know what to make of it just yet but the tables were full every day i didn't get a chance to get in a demo i didn't have the guts to stand in line and wait for two hours to be one of the first ones in to get it we got a roll and write with multiple boards per player this thing supposedly takes about two hours to play and frankly i want to do that (laughs) we got turing machine from the scorpion mask I don't know if this is going to be my kind of game, but it was very popular. Sold out by the end of the con. Been seeing pictures of it coming up. Looks like a little puzzle. It's probably not going to be one that I'm going to love, but I do have to point out on the show that it was a very hot game there. Cora Quest. Have you heard of this one, Scott? Cora Quest? Oh, yes, I have. Yes. Yeah, Dan Hughes made this with his daughter, Cora, who was at the time six and is now eight. Naturally, having a seven and a half year old, that piques my interest. It's supposed to be like a a little dungeon crawler of a game, and I almost bought it day one. And I was like, you know what? It might be a little bit simple for my taste. Last day, the con, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back. I'm going to pick up a copy of Korra Quest. Well, it's sold out. Cool fact about Korra Quest, all of the art in the game. Do you know what I'm about to say? Did you hear this? Oh, yes, I do. It's all done by children. And frankly, that gives the game a charm. Right. Last one I'll mention, Ahoy! from Leader Games. 
I mean, it's leader games. <laughs> We've, yeah. I've so far liked everything that they've done. I know very little about Ahoy, but it's another one that is definitely on my radar. So let's switch that to Hidden Gems. Always a little bit tougher because it's kind of trying to pick out games that folks might have missed or haven't heard of. Um, so it's I'll, I'll try. I'll try and see what I can do. All right. Stifling Dark from Sophisticated Cerberus Games. This looks like a hidden movement game of some sort with like translucent yellow templates that are okay. your flashlight's view. All Ooh. right. Now, I don't know exactly how they're, how that mechanism is going to work in the game. Obviously, it's going to have to do with, you know, what you're able to see and what you can't. I will say I'm set up for a play on Tabletop Simulator later this month. So hopefully, Adventures, I'll be able to tell you a bit more about Stifling Dark. AEG has a game coming out called Shake That City. It's a little town-building puzzle with a cube dispenser. Scott, you know how in uh, oh, Camel Up, you've got the pyramid, and you turn yes. it upside down, you just you push in the one like cardboard button, and you get a dot. Right. They did that with this cube dispenser. You, you pile a whole bunch of cubes in it, you have a little shake, and then you push in a button, and you let it go, and nine cubes come out in a perfect little grid. It. <laughs> <laughs> that goes in the middle of the table and each cube is of a, a they're not all different colors there's five different colors amongst the cubes right. so you don't know what you're going to get everybody's got their own player board think of it like a, a five by five or a six by six grid and you're going to be building a town building a city on there and much like uh, much like a sim city or, or i suppose going with board games much like suburbia you want to have certain building types next to other building types residential areas for every little pocket of residential that aren't touching each other you'll score a number of points for example when you get the cubes out of the tower say there's four of us sitting around a table ones at north east south and west the cubes go in the middle of the table you can put tiles on your board according to the orientation of the cubes for you so for oh. me i might look at the bottom of my uh, of, of the cubes and there's a green a green and a red and it's like, okay, so I get two parks and a house. I can put them anywhere on my board as long as I do a green, a green. Oh, not not a green, green, or red. I'm sorry. I choose a color. Let's suppose that those bottom two green, those are the only two greens, and they're immediately next to each other. I can put two of them on my board wherever I want so long as they're in the same configuration as All I right. can see in that little cube alignment. The person on my left, well, the cubes are different. Those two green that were in the bottom row for me, they're in the far right row for that player. Oh. They have to work with it from that angle. So while everybody has the same cubes to work with, the puzzle is that they're working with them in different ways, all striving for the same goal, which is the most points. Okay. So, Scott, one of the games that I had to demo for board game tables, uh, anytime that I had to ex like tell people the name of it, I had to keep looking up at the sign to say what it is. Psychic <laughs> Pizza Deliverers Go to Ghost Town. Okay. Scott, it's actually an older game. It's a 2018 game, but it's one that I had never played. And it was a ton of fun to demo. And I want to say something like 80% of the folks that demoed it ended up buying a copy. It's sort of a deduction game. So the premise of the game is one person's going to be the game master. And they use the inside of the box, which has a grid of a town. And they pick a card to set up an alignment. There's going to be, uh, there's going to be mailboxes, slices of pizza, basically, or what you want. Every player that, that's playing the game is going to have their own personal board, which is just a grid. And the only thing you know is your meeple's starting space. So on your turn, you might say, I move to the right. The game master, with you know everything inside the box so that the players can't see, will move the meeple to the right. right. And they'll be like, okay, to your immediate right, there is a fence. And above you, there is a pizza. 
So the player on their board, which is dry erase, by the way, they will move their meeple to the right and they'll draw a little fence to the right of their meeple and a little ghost mm-hmm. or, or a little pizza right above it. The objective of the game is to collect a piece of pizza and get it to a house that's looking to have pizza delivered. <laughs> it's honestly captivating for such a simple premise. And I got this, I got to this point where I was like, I want to play this with my buddy so I could be like, okay, this uh, once like I can make custom games, right? So somebody, somebody goes, I step to, uh, I'll move South. I'll move South. Okay. You move South right below you is the old Jessup building where those kids broke out the windows and got arrested. <laughs> oh, that old Jessup building. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can start catering it to your town and, and to your left is Johnny that, uh, that was given kids cigarettes cigarettes in middle school (laughs) like you can turn it into like a janky uh fun game about your town but no it it was captivating one more for the uh, the hidden gems this one's not out yet it's more of a preview forges of ravenshire this one comes from our friends that made cult of the deep i got an early look Mm. at this one from ba games uh it's not going to be crowdfunded until early next year but it is a really cool dice placement resource conversion game that I'm looking forward to playing again. And I will say, uh, Sam from BA, a really nice guy. He had us all together for a meetup. And I'm getting to the point where if he's going to put out a game, knowing Cult of the Deep and knowing what I saw of Forges of Ravenshire, uh, he's two for two for me. So I do want to play this one uh, some more and really excited to seeing it coming out. Very awesome. Very awesome. So the final thing I got to ask here is, with Gen Con, did it meet, exceed, or fall below your expectations. Definitely exceeded expectations. I there was certainly a lot of transition time, like the the time spent trying to figure out what to do next, uh, walks back and forth to the hotel, that sort of thing, uh, trying to coordinate the next thing for media's sake. Uh, but overall, I, you know what? I think I've come to realize that my favorite part of these conventions isn't necessarily playing game after game after game, but more so the camaraderie that comes with seeing a bunch of folks that I don't get to see too often. Yes. I spent a ton of time with Teacher Ryan, with Hungry Gamer, Will Brown. Uh, I had a chance to hang out with Adam from Tunnel Monster Collective for the first time that ran the car, the, the car PG. But I had a chance to meet Nick Fournier from Megapulse. I got in mm. some blood rage with Sam from BA Games. I got to attend a, the media event for AEG. And maybe the coolest of all, I had no idea that my old gang of magic friends from where I grew up was going to be there. I'm just, I'm walking down this hall. I rounded a hallway and I hear, Pat? Dude, it was my old friends. It was Ed, Mike, and Nick. I haven't seen this gang in over a decade. And to be able to reconnect and spend time with them, oh, I tell you what, that was that was wonderful. We had one night uh, just in the lobby of the hotel. You go to these cons and you expect to have all these stories about demoing games at the booths and whatnot. No, it was randomly running into these old friends and, and playing an old game. We, we played hardback down in the lobby of the hotel. And that might have been the highlight. One little detail that I would be remiss if I didn't point out is the taco incident of Gen Con 2022. Oh, oh, oh boy. You haven't heard this yet, have you? No, I have not. Let me set the stage. It's been a long day. And teacher Ryan and I, were getting hungry. And we're on our way back to the hotel with, okay, what is even open now? It's like 10 o'clock. Things are going to be crowded. Everybody's reconvening in the room. Let's see what we can come up with. Maybe we can door dash. I don't know, but we got to get some. I'm, I'm gurgling here. We need, we need sustenance. So we get up to the room and Nikki's looking at DoorDash, seeing what we can get. And she's like, oh, Taco Bell, Taco Bell. Ryan up, boom, light bulb went off. Taco, Taco Bell. <laughs> In my mind, I'm thinking, this is great. We're going to get a Taco 12 pack. 
it's going to be like $10. So we're going to go yep. have, I'm going to spend five bucks. And I'm going to have more tacos than I can eat. Yeah. It's, it's garbage for your body, but whatever, you know, it's, it's late. It's a convention taco bell. Let's do it. Ryan and I get to talk and Nick is, is that cool with you guys? And we're like, yeah, Nikki, yeah, that's cool. She starts collecting money. Okay, from you I need uh, six dollars. From you two I need uh, thirteen. Patrick and Ryan, uh, you guys combined, you owe me twenty-eight dollars. What? Twenty-eight dollars. Yeah, let that uh, let that sink in. <laughs> For a Taco Bell taco, what twelve pack or whatever's in that, but ten or twelve. Apparently, if you want sour cream on your tacos, that takes it from being the taco 12 pack to a 12 pack of supreme tacos and adds enough money so that you're getting supreme. Had I known that, I would have gone full on supreme. Give us the lettuce, the <laughs> tomato and all the fixings. But no, apparently because we said, yeah, put sour cream on all of them. That added that kind of money. And now Nikki swears, she swears that she ran it past us. She said, I asked you, I said, hey, guys, it's $28. Are you cool with that? She says, we both looked directly in her eyes and said, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, Ryan and I both say no. No, that would, I don't remember that at all. But Nikki has a witness as well. We're just going to leave it at that. This is going to go down as the Gen Con taco incident of 2022 and if nothing else, for the extra money, at least we got a story out of it. Oh, well, hey, that's the most important part of going to cons is to have that story afterwards and just to have those great memories. So it sounds like you definitely had some memories from Gen Con. Yes, indeed. Well, Scott, it's that time. We're going to wrap up episode 69, dudes, as we do every episode with how we leveled up. I'm going to keep it short and sweet because I've done a whole lot of talking and I want you to take your time with yours. My level up for this episode was working for board game tables, which I just spoke to. Adventurers, if you have the chance to work for a booth at a convention, I highly recommend it. It's actually a ton of fun. You're not missing out on parts of the convention. You're experiencing a new facet thereof. Scott, how'd you level up? I'm putting my toes back in the acting world again, and I just got He's cast. Back. Yes, I got cast in a horror movie. So Ooh. hopefully we'll have more details to come here soon. Uh, I get to play a sheriff's deputy, and things happen in the woods. We'll just leave it at that. What kind of movie is this anyway? <laughs> hey, it's a horror movie. <laughs> Adventurers, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Do stick with us in a couple weeks. We're going to have our episode with Rise of the Gnomes. Shortly thereafter, we've got a side quest for familiars and foes. We're so glad to have you with us. Scott, you can have the last words. Hey, I think that it kind of goes along the lines of what you said about Gen Con. If oh. you have a chance to go out and make some memories and talk with people and just have that odd chance of, hey, maybe running into some old friends do it you never know what kind of a good time you're going to have and just be able to relive some of those memories it's great to just giggle and laugh with a bunch of friends that you feel absolutely comfortable with adventurers until the next time thank you adventurers for joining us for this episode of the level up board game podcast we encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.